1: running. Absolute genius.
2: Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the
3: show where we bring you... Science. What that essentially means is... Discovery. Is advances. questions, Research.
2: Technology. Unbelievable.
4: Without further ado... This is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. This is the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Chris Smith. This week, let there be light, but not too much of it. We'll be discussing the pollution of the night skies... ...and what we can do about it. We're going to be focusing our attention on the much overlooked problem that's light pollution. When you see images of some of the world's largest metropolises lit up at night... ...you'd be forgiven for being struck by the beauty of the illuminations sprawling across the landscape most people are. But as one scientist puts it, this is the equivalent of admiring the beauty of the rainbow colours that gasoline produces in water, and not recognising it as chemical pollution. So just as we accept that greenhouse gases or construction site noise are harmful effects that we're introducing into the environment, it's time to change our thinking on all that light that's spilling out from our built environments. Our producer James Titko reports.
3: The temperament of an astrophotographer is one of patience.
2: I tried three nights in a row, waiting for the right conditions, because I needed no clouds in the sky, but also no winds, so that the water would have been calm enough so they could have got the reflection.
3: Emma Barrera is describing the lengths she went to capture the stunning picture of the Milky Way she sent me shot in the Acadia National Park in Maine, United States. It depicts our galaxy in magnificent detail, the stars mirrored in the tranquil water below. Emma travels America taking pictures of the awe-inspiring vastness and beauty of our universe.
2: That's what made that picture unique. is Always is the story behind how you got that picture.
3: Recently, though, this work, and that of all astrophotographers, has been made even more trying than it already was.
2: Last time I was tracking in New Jersey, I was mostly guessing where the uh, North Star was.
3: Fewer people than ever have the simple pleasure of staring up into the sky at night and witnessing the breathtaking beauty above. That's because it's mostly concealed now by sky glow, as it's known, an effect of light pollution.
2: I started in 2015, and nowadays it's getting harder to photograph the night sky because of the intensity of light pollution. For instance, here in New Jersey at the Jersey Shore, I can forget going to the shore in the summer because the tourists go to the shore and there is way too much light pollution. The same I can say for some areas like in North Carolina, the Outer Banks, when the tourist season starts, you can forget it. There's way too much light pollution.
3: IMA's pursuit is artistic, but Skyglow is hampering other disciplines as well. To find out how light pollution is impacting the scientific study of the stars, I visited the University of Cambridge's Institute of Astronomy to catch up with Xander Byrne.
5: So we're currently in the 16-inch telescope dome, which we have here at the Institute of Astronomy. Uh, We mostly use it for outreach stuff, but yeah, we're in a big dome, which is why it's so echoey.
3: You mentioned that this telescope's these days mainly used for outreach purposes. I wonder if you could tell me why that is. So uh, when the Institute was being
5: established centuries ago, It was right out on the edge of Cambridge, beyond kind of the boundaries. And this is because there was, you know, a little bit of light pollution from the city, you know, mostly like candlelit street lamps, for example. But as, you know, the city has expanded in that time, the Institute is now within Cambridge proper. And obviously there's a lot more in the way of street lighting and domestic lighting in the city. And so there's just too much pollution to do any kind of observational research from right here.
3: That's really interesting. So the Institute was sort of strategically placed outside of the limits of where the light pollution would touch. And the researchers had to stop going on here. So where is most astronomy-based research done these days?
5: The biggest observatories that are in operation today are usually in very, very remote places, often where it's quite dry as well, because humidity can also affect astronomical observations. Uh, So a very good place where a lot of observatories are is in the Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, There's a lot of new ones being built there as well. The Vera C. Rubin Observatory in particular, which is coming online next year, hopefully. Uh, There are also other places like uh, on uh, remote islands are also quite good. So there are a couple in Hawaii, uh, some in the Canary Islands as well. Coincidentally, also quite good places to go on holiday, but uh, I'm assured that that is just
3: a coincidence. I'm sure it is. You guys have got all sorts of cool kit to call upon when it comes to observing the sky. Is it really a case that the tools at your disposal are not able to overcome the light pollution
5: problem? To some extent, astronomy is always going in a direction of looking for fainter things because the brightest objects are sort of low-hanging fruit and are much easier to do science on. We've kind of we kind of know what they're doing, um, so we're now really trying to probe the the most distant, the faintest objects, and that's becoming a lot more difficult to do as a result of the light pollution.
3: And this is a problem that's only set to get worse, not just as countries industrialize further, but development into space and the satellites that orbit the Earth? Uh, Yes, so
5: potentially quite a big problem-facing observatories today is satellite tracks, which sometimes appear in astronomical images, uh, which being taken, you have these bright streaks going all the way across. So, for example, I mentioned the uh, Vera C. Rubin Observatory, It's been estimated that they might have to throw away something like 40% of the images that they're going to be taking just because they're going to be contaminated with these satellite trails, which is is pretty sad, really. One argument that, for example, unsurprisingly, Elon Musk has proposed is that we just put loads of telescopes into Earth orbit, and that would solve all the problems. Uh, But even the Hubble Space Telescope, which is obviously in orbit around the Earth, has sometimes seen... Trails of satellites orbiting at higher altitudes than it, crossing its path. So even putting everything in space wouldn't necessarily solve all of our problems.
3: And presumably makes it all a lot stronger. Yeah, more by
5: like a factor of 10 more expensive. So it's really not a solution.
3: And if the negative impacts on our appreciation of the universe aren't enough for you light pollution has serious implications down here on Earth as well. Migratory birds, for example, rely on visual cues of when day becomes night to trigger certain behaviours, which artificial light at night can disrupt. They will end up confused as to where they think they are and where they should be. And there are other species impacted by our inclination towards 24-7 illumination as well.
6: The sea turtles have a very well-developed visual system on which they heavily rely on during their life. Thomas Reischig is a neurobiologist turned full-time sea
3: turtle conservationist.
6: It is the dim light over the sea. So it is not uh, the point light sources, but dim light over the sea. The light above the sea is a guide for the turtles at two crucial phases in their life. First, when they are uh, nesting. When nesting females approach the beach, lay their nest, and return to the sea, And the second life stage is when the sea turtles are hatching from the nests, which were right in the sand. So they come out and now they have to find the way into the sea. Before we populated our coastlines with bright lights,
3: if you were to stand on a beach, you'd be able to recognize that the sky was brighter over the sea than into land. Sea turtles are conditioned to follow the brighter light to know where to go, at the two critical stages of life thomas mentioned
6: earlier a nesting turtle has to decide for a nesting place then if it finished nesting it want to go back to the sea as quick as possible but if it takes the wrong way it doesn't go to the sea it just goes in the direction of the land it will die it will die in the in the sun on the next day they will just be overheated and desiccated and all that. And, and, and then the turtle die big, dies because it does not find dead, uh, its way to the sea. And second, also the hatchlings, if they are hatching, want to go to the sea. But because of artificial light, they go in the direction of the land. They, of course, are dying. They're predated. They're dying in the hot sunlight. And
4: many thanks to Zonderburn and, before him, Immo Barrera. They were speaking with their very own James Titko. But wildlife are not the only animals that are impacted by our inclination towards 24-7 illumination. We are too. And with me now is Franco Capuccio, who's a cardiovascular physician at the University Hospitals of Coventry and Warwickshire and looks at this question. How can light pollution affect our health, Franco?
1: Light is the most important environmental cue that we have for synchronising our circadian rhythm as well as animals, also human beings have that. So any change that happens in the light-dark cycles will cause changes in the way the biological clocks work and therefore affecting our sleep patterns in, uh, in terms of quantity and quality. And what's the evidence that if
4: you have those sorts of disturbances, the health impacts are negative?
1: The epidemiology of sleep in large populations now have clearly shown that disturbances in terms of quality and quantity, so deprivation and also the fragmentation are associated with the short-term effects that we may all know and recognize like reduced alertness, reduced performance, low mood. But also more worryingly now, we know there are long-term effects and the long-term effects are quite serious. We go from an increased incidence of obesity high blood pressure and diabetes to more significant increase in fatal and non-fatal heart attacks and strokes, and not mentioned in mental health, depression, anxiety. And there is some evidence now to link disruption of sleep to some form of cancers like breast cancer and prostate cancer.
4: Can we causally link that? Do we know, for example, that light pollution is causing the dysregulation of our body clocks and that is causing these diseases?
1: In terms of long term conditions, can only be taken from experimental studies, can have a shorter duration. But if you manipulate, for instance, a sleep duration or you disrupt sleep in different ways, you can have reversible cardiometabolic. And functional effects on a number of functions which if sustained would lead to the serious conditions so we know that those effects are reversible when we change the disruption of sleep so there is a very direct link between how much sleep is reduced in terms of quantity or is disrupted and the entity of the cardiometabolic and also mental health issues that you find later on. In these contexts
4: What do we actually call light pollution then? What do I need to be exposed to to cause these sorts of disruptions and therefore put myself at risk of the sorts of conditions that you've been outlining?
1: Yeah, the importance of light in regulating sleep is quite complex. We have uh, some biological clocks in our brain that kick uh, to give us a day-night cycle, but they're not exactly 24 hours. So what we do, we have a system through our eyes that detect day and night in order to tell the body clock to resynchronize every day to the 24-hour, which is our conventional day that we have created as human beings to get together. Now that light eventually comes to the body, will stop one hormone called melatonin, which we call sometimes the sleeping hormone. And when it gets darker, the eye transfers that message, so the melatonin goes up, and we tend to fall asleep. And vice versa, when daylight starts in the morning, the melatonin shuts down. So these are mainly affected by what we call blue light. The blue light has the effect of day, of the sun, so has intensity and spectrum very similar to the sun. Whereas a red light, which is of less energetic at the long wavelength, is more conducive to, uh, let's say, sleep or dozing off. So in reality, we need to avoid, during the night, any light which is bright, so it's blue, has high intensity and spectrum. I'm afraid uh, we have many of the lit environments at night which are uh, very bright blue light, and that would obviously uh, disrupt sleep in the people exposed to it on a regular basis.
4: So is one mitigation then that we either dissuade people from exposing themselves to these blue lights because television screens these days, laptop screens, mobile phone screens, we're we're all on these things all the time We're all deluged in this light. We're all disrupting our body clocks then Is it just that we've got to turn those things off? Or are there other ways that we can mitigate this so that they don't impact on our sleep in the same way or to the same extent?
1: Well, that's very important. First of all, let me give you two or three numbers. In 2008, uh, estimates where the 50% of the human population now lives in urban areas, and by 2050, it is estimated that more than 90% will be urbanized and living in cities. Now, when we work out how much time we spend indoors in cities, at the moment, it's nearly 80%, and one third is spent in our bedroom. So when we get these numbers, we, we understand that the first thing is the indoor activity of light uh, has to be regulated so that is conducive to maintaining our daytime and uh, night cycle. Otherwise, we'll always be awake. And there are uh, rules for the individuals they need to follow. And definitely not having a screen in the room is the first thing, particularly if projects very blue. Uh, high intensity light but also we need to understand that most of the indoors activity happens in offices in schools and uh, in particular in hospitals i have experience where being in a hospital at night is terrible because the lights are on all Mm. the time and patients can't sleep so and therefore there is an issue between what is awareness and behavioral change but i suspect I would put sleep and light pollution and other problems within the domain of public health and policy where I think there needs a more societal change. Uh, for instance, architects and planners mm. at the moment consider lights using the visual, um, the visual performance type of problem, in other words, make a road safe, uh, visible, but they don't consider what is the non-visual effects, which is exactly what we're talking about.
4: Thanks, Franco, for outlining it. Very well put. Franco Capuccio there. So far on the show, we've been exploring the many implications of man-made illuminations. They disrupt astronomy, they kill our wildlife, and they leave us with an increased risk of all sorts of different diseases. But what can we do about it? Well, Ruskin Hartley is the Executive Director of Dark Sky International, and I began by asking him what inspired him to take up this mantle?
7: I'd worked in conservation for the better part of 25 years, working on restoring ancient forests, trying to remove plastics from the ocean. I'll be honest, until five years ago, I hadn't really really thought about light pollution as an issue. And as as I came across it, I realised not only did it impact almost everything I cared about from a conservation perspective, but also amongst on one of those other issues I'd been tackling, it was also one of the easiest to be solved.
4: You make it, sounds like there is a solution just waiting to be voiced then so how do we tackle it
7: our organization dark Sky international always believe that the, the solution to light pollution actually comes from better quality lighting this is not about turning off all the lights and plunging us into medieval darkness as, as some people like to say but it is thinking about natural darkness as a precious resource and light as something to be used sparingly and thoughtfully to meet our needs whilst mitigating the impact on wildlife, uh, human health, climate, energy change, you name it, all those things that people care about.
4: I think also it's sort of ingrained into us, isn't it, that light equals good, dark equals bad. Light combats crime, dark begets crime. And so almost it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that respect that we put new houses out, we build new developments and new facilities, and they all come with a host of lights,
7: yeah, I mean, I, I, many of the world's religions great books go back to that dichotomy of light and dark, right? So, yes, it it, it is it, it is there. Now, the reality is until a little over 100 years ago, and I think Newcastle was one of the first cities in the world to be lit with public streetlights outside, the world at night essentially was dark and, and, and people were used to stepping outside at night and seeing the stars overhead unless it was cloudy as like it is in the UK much of the time. In fact, all of us were, in a sense, were astronomers. We marked out the passage of time through the passage of the stars. And we have essentially lost that connection both to the natural world and to the stars overhead. And I I think that has been a great loss, a measurable loss to society. Today, uh, 83% of people around the world live under light polluted skies. 99% in Europe and North America have lost that connection to the night sky because they live under light polluted skies.
4: Are you getting traction when you put your arguments to people who are policy makers, decision makers? Are they receptive? Or do people say, look, you know, this is a first world problem. We're grateful we've got some lighting.
7: I think it depends. I mean, it's, it's always hard to answer those broad brush questions. We can answer, answer it with specifics. You know, there are certainly many communities both large and small, who are starting to understand that light pollution is a real issue and actually better quality light can help deal with some of the, the other concerns of their community. You know, take the city of Tucson, Arizona, where we are based. They are very protective of their dark skies because of the impact that has on the surrounding astronomy community. So when they upgraded their streetlights a number of years ago, they they established from the very start that they wanted to both save energy by transitioning to more efficient led-based streetlights but at the same time they wanted to make sure they mitigated and reduced light pollution and by establishing those twin goals they're able to save i think it was two million u.s dollars per year in energy costs and they also reduced light pollution as measured by the astronomers by eight percent
4: one person put it to me though you mentioned led lighting that While this is a game changer in efficiency terms, because it's so much more efficient, you're wasting so much less electricity and turning more electricity into useful light rather than invisible heat, that people calculated that, in fact, they could have more lighting for less electricity spend because of LEDs. And so, in fact, they increased and intensified the lighting.
7: So it can be a double-edged sword, this. Yeah, that is absolutely right. Unfortunately, what has materialized is a great increase in light pollution as a result, both by putting out more light and also changing the quality of the light that's put out there. Uh, We have essentially transitioned to a world where we're spewing far more short wavelength, blue, rich light at night into the environment that has ever been seen before. Essentially, every white, led streetlight out there is really a blue led based streetlight with some clever chemistry that we perceive them as white but those blue rich emissions that are there are driving sky glow and are much more impactful of biology and so fundamentally changing the ecology of the night
4: it sounds a bit from what you're saying like the pill's a bit worse than the ill then with this unless we're very careful
7: well, I think the trick is to be careful, and I don't think the pill is worse than the ill. I think it's it, it's how much and and how you're taking that. Yes, and it's really about thinking about using it responsibly. Now, the good news about light emitting diet technology is they can be controlled. Uh, you can control both the direction of them through clever optics. You can control the this underlying spectrum, the sort of color quality of the light, and you can dim them down and turn them off very quickly when they're not needed. So they have tremendous promise when they use carefully. But if they use without thought, the the impact on the, the natural world can be tremendous.
4: Ruskin Hartley, he's the executive director of Dark Sky International. And it was him who made the very poignant remark to me as we were chatting when we did that interview, that we've got to a point now where, ridiculously, people are using light to create dark or apparent dark because you illuminate one structure extremely brightly to make everything around it look darker it would be better if we just had it dark to start with. Well, how do we do something about the sorts of issues that Ruskin was raising there? How do we put this into practice? Well, with us now is Martin Morgan-Taylor. He's an Associate Law Professor at De Montfort University. He's also an expert on light pollution legislation. Is this a tough nut to crack, Martin?
8: Well, this is a good one. Really what we need to do is we need to make sure that people, ordinary members of the public, can see that there is a problem that affects them in their day-to-day life, that something that matters to them. And that also that we can see that regulators can see that it's an issue that's actually worth regulating. And the two are intertwined because regulators won't act if they believe that the public don't see it as something that's a vote winner. So well, really what you've been showing here is great because you've been showing that light pollution is not just about the loss of the night sky and that's how it's traditionally been couched in terms. Really what we're seeing is it's something that can harm human health. It's something that can harm animal health. It can also even disturb plant life. But it can also amount to a waste of electricity and a waste of electricity, if produced from um, fossil fuels, is a waste of carbon emissions and really what we could do with is further research that really sort of pinpoints where does street mm. lighting really make a difference Now, there's been some research that's been done but I think what we need to do is to drill down and get this in further granularity because today can, people can are I, frightened of knife crime
4: can, can I just ask though because you're a legal expert Now do we have a sort of threshold or or are we at risk here because we we have no case or it's hard to build a case because we're saying well we don't know where the line is, what's light pollution, how bright does something have to be before we consider it is causing light pollution or is it just a subjective thing where a person says well that's disrupting my sleep because I think it is. Is that not part of the difficulty here that we, we haven't got a set of standards that people agree on, that's light pollution, that's not, that's not all right. that is.
8: Yeah, I'd certainly say that light pollution, for me, is sort of the sum of all of the negative effects that can be caused by light at night. Now, you're right, because there's several ways that you can go about this. and Really, it's sort of a combination of all of what I'm about to say, I think, would actually work quite nicely. We need to sort of be proactive and preventative. We need to try and stop as much of the problem arising in the first place. So, in other words, stopping the sales of a great amount of poor lighting or lighting that's often misused. So very bright consumer domestic flood lighting, so-called security lighting is a good example because there's no research study that says that it actually deters criminals. So all people are probably doing is wasting their own electricity bill and potentially disturbing the sleep of neighbours or the ecology or the loss of the night sky. So trying to stop things in the first place is a good place to begin. And then if you're trying to deal with the problem once it's arisen, really, you need enforcement bodies to see, yeah, light pollution is something that's genuine. Uh, and if you've got sort of a set of metrics, in other words, sort of a table that says this amount of light's OK, but that isn't. Now, there are some guidance documents here that will give tables for lighting. So, again, that helps. But really what we need is public understanding. Light, yeah, it can it, it can be a great help for us. But really, the more the light, the better is a bit of a myth that it's sort of lighting to a level that's helpful rather than lighting over and above that. And it's also making sure that the light goes where it's needed, where it's intended. So if we've got regulation to make sure that light's shielded to stop it from shining into the night sky, it's like, would you have half of your radiators sticking out of your windows when you're trying to keep your house warm in winter?
4: (laughs) Martin, can I ask you are there any countries which are doing this particularly well or better than we are so that we can look to what they're doing and what yes. seems to work? Is it is it just down to public policy and what the public think and making it a health issue to get people interested or are there other ways to make this happen?
8: Yeah, I mean France is a really good example. They've uh, had some fresh legislation that just came in a few years ago and really it's it's couched in terms of trying to save energy and also to help the, uh, generally to help the environment, but certainly to actually help people with uh, with the money in their pockets. So what we have got is curfews. So this is really simple and straightforward to enforce. Lights need to go off after a certain time at night. So this is internal as well as external lights because so many times we see uh, skyscrapers, we see office blocks with all of the lights on all night long, and you think, I mean, really, why? (laughs) so what you've got is a rule that certain lighting most lights, needs to go off after a certain time and then we've got controls over blue lighting which is what the uh, the doctor you were talking to earlier on trying to sort of limit the problem of blue light at night we've also got controls of sky beams sort of bright advertising lights and things of this nature so if you've got uh basically a, regu- a regulatory system that's trying to sort of stop bad lighting going in in the first place to have relatively straightforward um, principles such as curfews. I mean, the light's on or it's off. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You don't need a light meter to see whether or not it's over and above the level of light that uh, that's permitted. Um, but then there are other countries such as Korea, uh, which have got metrics where you've got a table that really is sort of, We well, are allowed this much light, but you're not allowed more than that. OK, you do need a light meter, but then that's sort of trying to sort of limit things to particular set standards. Whatever method you use, you're going to need the buy-in of the members of the public and also the enforcement bodies.
4: Will not market forces, to an extent, ride to our rescue on this one? Because... I think the cost of living crisis as well as there's there's a big drive now to endow houses with smart metering people are very energy conscious about the climate as well at the moment will all this perhaps come together and motivate people to think well, well hang on that's energy if I cut those lights down this will help because the thing that I'm in, I'm thought I'm thinking about here is as you were talking We've got an enormous housing stock with lots of old-fashioned architecture and old-fashioned specifications. and, And we're in the dark ages with our insulation and so on. It's going to take years for all that to catch up. Are we not at risk if we start saying, well, we'll legislate, but it doesn't apply to older properties? It's going to take 100 years before we're up to date.
8: Yeah, it's it's a difficult one. Certainly your first point there about market forces. So if you actually get your customers, your public, your business, to recognise that overlighting is just a waste of energy, it's a waste of carbon emissions, it's bad for the environment, it's bad for bad for everything, then you're going to end up with a reduced demand for that particular type of lighting. So that's good, but yeah, you still then will have the existing lighting stock that's in place. But I think it's probably going to be unfortunately necessary that people are allowed to sort of phase out old light types. But hopefully what we need consumers really to realise that um, lighting and energy saving is all part of the same thing and external lighting is still part of this energy saving
4: so save your money on a security light and fit a better window lock and a better door lock instead thank you very much the very illuminating martin morgan taylor there and that's all we have time for this week but next time we're going to be diving into the world of marine science with the pacific warming at an alarming rate and the north sea experiencing heat wave we're looking at ways of combating anthropogenic effects on the ocean and its inhabitants The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening. And until next time, goodbye.